Okay, so I think we have uh, five weeks or so left of this class. Uh, this might be a good place just to kind of push pause and see if uh, any things have been stirred up in your hearts or your minds. What has been revealed? Where have you struggled? Um, what are you excited about? Has this uh, spawned any good thoughts in your head so far in those conversations we've been having? If not, that's okay, but I just want to kind of open the floor up to see what you're thinking about how you're gifted. Maybe think back to the, to the assessment that you took uh, at the beginning of the semester. How are those gifts uh, kind of being harvested and being pulled out? Any thoughts? I would say um, the way I think about how I'm gifted uh, it's easy for me to use the gifts that I am more strongly gifted in. I think what's been the most productive for me is to notice where I'm a little bit weaker. Um, not just for the sake of working on those or trying to improve where I'm weak. I think it makes sense for us to focus where we're strong in, in a lot of places. But I think it's helpful for the sake of me appreciating those gifts and other people that I see in the body. So if I know if I'm kind of weak in an area, I can really appreciate that Kent may have that gift where I'm weak. So that kind of helps me love the church even more. Well, that's wrong. I think it's interesting because too often we get caught up in just being busy. And then to see these all broken down in their own categories, it helps you realize that maybe I have been wasting my time in some of these areas that I'm really not that good at. And I should have been focusing on things that uh, maybe I didn't really want to do, but I'm actually pretty good at it, you know? So that's kind of what I've been getting on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it just kind of helps you think more intentionally. Mm -hmm. I like, like I say, sometimes we're just busy. I'm guilty of that. I think we're all guilty of that sometimes. But um, having a little bit more thought and intentionality behind what you're what you're doing, I think, helps. Kent, what I mean, in addition to what you two have said, it just kind of gives you a little more permission to decline some busy activities. Mm -hmm. you, you feel a little more uh, confident that, well, you know, I can support this, but my efforts would probably better served somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I guess permission is what I think of. Yeah. Yeah, not all of us are good at saying no, yeah. but kind of that permission to say no and focus on what we're, what we're more strongly gifted at. That's a good thing. Anything else?
Right. And I always like shy away from the youth and like I don't need to do that one right now. Yeah. I know there's someone else in the room that can do it. Right. And I'm usually like hands off on him, so now I'm actually trying to Good. go for it. And this is probably one for him. Good. Yeah. <laughs> go and try and do it. Good. I think everybody should try at least the, the lower end. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. I, I think there are seasons of life and seasons of activity where we should focus on our strengths, and I think there are seasons where we should focus on our weaknesses and try to try to grow those. But but in order to do any of that, you have to be aware of where you're where you're gifted so that you can be intentional about those kinds of things. So anyway, good. And we're glad you're here to participate in the conversation. Okay, well today we're going to talk about the gift of prophecy. And uh, for many of us uh, who grew up in Churches of Christ, we kind of immediately go, oh, that's like really close to speaking in tongues or something like that. And it kind of makes you, kind of makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. But um, I think we're going to dig in a little bit more and, and maybe find a different way to look at this. So let me just throw this question out. What is a prophet? When you think about a prophet, what first comes to mind? How would you... What would you say a prophet is? Teacher. Okay, a teacher. Absolutely. Someone who speaks for God. Okay. Someone who speaks for God. Always think of Elijah and Elijah. Yeah. And it's always hard to keep which keep them straight, at least for me. Elijah and Elijah. At least they came in alphabetical. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Cheating. you know, I think sometimes uh, in the common language, we may think a prophet is someone who tells the future. But really, like you've already said, it's one that just really tells the truth to the now, yeah. really. Uh, teaches God's word. It may include some looking ahead, but generally it's teaching God's truth that's right. Yeah, some people tend to think of a prophet as someone who can foretell the future. And um, while prophets sometimes did that in the Bible, that's not necessarily what made them prophets. Um, All right, anything else? Let's look real quick at these two texts. Uh, Romans 12, 6. Uh, We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. Okay, so there's a linkage between prophecy and faith. So let's note that. And then, and then turn over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 27 and 28. Does somebody have that? Could read that? Now you are the body of Christ. Oh, did you say 27? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And each one of you is part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those giving of having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Okay, so here's a list of some of the gifts that we've looked at. Um, and uh, the, the point here, Paul says, these people have a role to play in the church, whether you're a prophet or a teacher. Um, an apostle first. So uh, this is one of the roles that shows up 
in the church. So it doesn't, it, it, it shouldn't make us uncomfortable. We should be comfortable with it. We should expect that there should be prophets among God's people. Um, and it, they're not necessarily going to look like Elijah and Elisha. Um, but I, I think still today uh, we have prophets among God's people that help. Uh, Kent, what did you say? Help uh, tell, tell God's... Yeah, for the now. Right. I, I like that. Not That's just good. tell the future, but tell the now. Yeah. yeah. Speak, speak on behalf of God. Um, okay, so uh, for people who lead God's people, I think this is true all the way <clears throat> back through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, even today, uh, ministers, clergy, people tend to think about their role in two different components, this priest and prophet components, kind of a yin and a yang, and there's a, there's a balance to it. Um, so the priest role, if you think all the way back to the Old Testament, the priest role is someone who, who uh, uh, kind of mediates between God's people and, and God, who offers the sacrifices, who cares for the flock. It's more of a shepherding role, someone who looks after God's people, um, guides them towards God. Okay, so, so it's, a, it's a very uh, pastoral kind of role that the priest has. The, the prophet stands at the city gates and proclaims to God's people uh, how they need to repent, how they need to come back to God. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of a different role. The, the prophetic voice is one that calls people back to God, where the priest kind of maintains that relationship between people and God. Um, the prophet is, is calling people back to God. And so because of that, People tend to love the priest because the priest is helping them see God and helping them connect to God. And people tend to kill the prophets is the general uh, pattern. Uh, people don't usually like prophets because prophets are usually telling them what they're doing wrong or what, or what they need to do better. And so um, prophets tend to get killed. <clears throat> and that's true not even, uh, well, <clears throat> certainly in the Old Testament. <clears throat> I think it's true today in, in contemporary history. Um, I think uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. served as, a, I mean, his voice was a prophetic voice, was an agitator for the sake of justice in our, in our culture. And in fact, he, he was killed for, for his prophetic voice. I think that that has some, a little bit to do with the future telling, like, not like a psychic, I'm telling you you're going to be the best kind of person or whatever, but a prophet knowing what God's future looks like. And then calling God's people say, you are not headed towards that future. You have to come back to this path, like Dr. King, you know, calling out Christians of the day. This is not the future that God has in plan for, has planned for his, this is not the future that his people are to embody. And you need to come to this, you know, come, so totally calling out, but I think based on a vision of what God's future looks like for his people, not really telling the future, but knowing right. this is not the path that leads us to his justice and his right. shalom. Right. Yeah. Yep. Well said. Yes. Be being able to see <clears throat> um, through God's eyes, maybe, you know, that hymn, Be Thou My Vision. That's one of my favorite hymns, but being able to see what God sees, being able to see what God wants for the world and realizing that we're not on the right trajectory and we've got to change we got to make a we got to make a turn, and so that's difficult for cultures. It's difficult for churches. It's different difficult for individuals. You think about the <clears throat> story between uh, David and uh, Nathan, 
the prophet, who Nathan, you know, is being a prophetic voice just for David, essentially, just in that one-on-one relationship. Um, so prophets can speak into different venues, you know, uh, but it's always an agitation. Stephen, Sorry. Stephen, John the Baptist would be examples. Yes. But there are more subtle ways that we kind of silence the prophet now. Right. Oh, man, that means no bird is killing. Mm-hmm. We kind of discount their voice or push mute on them or just kind of dismiss them. Yeah, that's a, that's a good... Uh, yes, uh, we now have the flexibility <clears throat> that we control what voices we're hearing, what media we're consuming, what friend groups we have, what churches we associate with. I mean, we totally are in control of what information comes into us. And so if we don't like a stream of information, we can just turn that off, right? We can just defriend that person on Facebook. We can just change from Fox to CNN or from CNN to Fox or whatever. Uh, we, can, we can put down this newspaper. We can, we can control what information is coming to us. And so if we have a voice that's kind of an agitating voice, all we have to do is mute that, you know? It's really easy. We don't have to kill anybody. We can just not, we can just ignore it. Um, The wisdom, I think, there, hopefully is coming through, is that we we need the prophetic voice. Um, We we need to be agitated on occasion. We're gonna watch a video clip here in just a second um, that, talks about that a little bit more. So let's, let's, uh, def- let's de- go ahead and define this first, and then um, we'll let uh, Brueggemann help, help us out just a little bit. Uh, prophecy is the God-given ability to reveal God's truth and proclaim it in a timely and relevant manner. A relevant manner is for the now, like what you're talking about. Relevant, uh, a relevant manner for understanding, correction, repentance, and edification. Okay, and those last three things, correction, repentance, and edification, those are usually things that, uh, well, edification, not so much, but the correction and repentance are usually things that are not real easy to, easy to take. That sounds a lot like the spirit role. Yeah. Think about it. Yeah. I mean, can, we're supposed to have the spirit. And, right. Uh, and, and again, when the spirit sometimes convicts us, it's easy to mute the spirit. Mm-hmm. We, we don't always have to right. follow, follow that leading, that nudge. Um, okay, so let's, uh, let's listen to uh, Brueggemann here as he helps us understand the role of prophet just a little bit more. There are agents of order. There are people whose work uh, is to maintain order. And obviously we have to have people like that. Uh, what, what we're not so quick to recognize is that it is equally important uh, to have people who remind us that it could be otherwise. Uh, and uh, I think uh, artists, poets, uh, filmmakers are all uh, about uh, reminding us that it could be otherwise. And I, I don't know, but I suspect many marriages uh, are probably a convergence of uh, those two roles in some way, and I think it, I think it could happen that way. Uh, but the but the bias of the Bible, it seems to be in both the Old and New Testament, uh, is to uh, is is to put the work of visioning front and center. 
So if you just think of the old storytellers in the Torah, or you think of the prophets, or the lament psalms, they, they are all an insistence it could be otherwise, and clearly that's what the gospel narratives are wanting to say to us as well. Uh, I, I think that there, there is shot through the biblical narrative also the voices of order, and, and it's easy to find that stuff. Uh, so in the, in the New Testament, the pastor epistles of Timothy and Titus are primarily voices of order. They, they're, they're trying to get this uh, rambunctious church into some kind of disciplined pattern of obedience. And, yeah, it's a, it's easy both, yeah. Um, so a, a couple of good things there. <clears throat> we need both of those roles. We need the one who, who helps uh, bring order, who um, is that pastoral presence. So we need the role of the priest, <clears throat> but we need to be careful that we don't just fall in love with the, the priestly voice and not hear the prophetic voice. Um, that, that, that's important. And... Uh, <clears throat> I was going to say a second thing in response to that, which I forgot. Um, any any reaction to that to that video? some stable, having something stable and stability and predictability that we use that paradigm to go to the Bible and we're looking for instances where we can find some directions in Corinthians to clean up the church, Timothy has said and we want to we want to um, set that up as our model because that, that we can we can rally around that and then it won't change so I think it's a characteristic in humans and and the thought that, that uh, the Bible includes a message to both is refreshing. Right, yeah. Yes, and, and that kind of reminded me uh, what I was going to say. I, I think it, it's true that it's human nature to resist change, uh, but I also think that within Churches of Christ, we have been especially susceptible to kind of getting comfortable and nestled into those epistles where we can find order, where we can find um, a, a, a clear... Uh, delineation of what what we need to do this is okay here's our checklist let's make sure we're hitting all the, all the boxes uh, and what we have tended to do historically is then to shy away from you know Amos and Micah and, and uh, the prophets who were speaking to God's people years ago but uh, we can still extrapolate truths from from those prophets um, today so in fact we're going to look at a couple of those texts later on but uh, but yes I, I think it's just human nature to kind of feel comfortable and, and be in place and not 
not be open to change so much. Ron, what else? I, I liked the fact that they brought up about it being in marriage as well, because mm -hmm. usually good marriages have some opposition to each other, um, opposites attract. Yeah. Now that goes back to the yin and yang. I think you got to have both pieces there. Um, okay, so uh, yes, as as um, as you see here, uh, you know the, the prophet is usually someone who's an agitator, radical, zealot, reformer, revolutionist. So um, one one thing we need to pick up on here is usually we don't like to be around these people. You know, usually somebody who's really radical, we just can you know kind of hit that mute button, and we don't like to be around those people. We, we need to make sure that we are open to those voices. Um, and so if someone is kind of rubbing you the wrong way, kind of agitating you, I think we have to make double the effort to make sure we're hearing what they're saying. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to agree. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to take action on what they're saying. But I do think it's important for us to recognize when we feel agitated, we need to be listening. That, that's a good signal just to say, hey, let's hear this voice. Um, because the prophet is never going to offer you something that makes you feel comfortable. That's the whole point of the prophetic voice. And so uh, you need to be open to the fact that when you're uncomfortable, it could be a prophetic voice um, speaking. So people with this gift uh, see a truth that others fail to see and challenge them to respond. So like what Dixie was saying earlier, uh, they're able to see God's uh, true shalom for his people, true vision. And then they're able to kind of uh, share that vision with God's people. And, and many times it's juxtaposed against reality. So uh, the, the prophet says, hey, you're living like this. God wants us to live like this. And there's, you know, there's uh, tension there. There's, um, those things don't match. Uh, the person with the, with the gift of prophecy understands God's heart and mind through life experiences. They're able to see how God's working in their own life and, they, and then share that with other people. And then they also expose sin or deception in others for the purpose of making things right. And um, that's an important part, right? So how you recognize the false prophetic voice, if you're feeling agitated and you think, oh, maybe I should listen to this person because they might be a prophet. If all they're doing is exposing sin or deception in others, they're missing a key piece. Okay, so if, if they're just agitating for the sake of agitating, it may not be a, a real prophetic voice that you need to hear. But if it's for the purpose of making things right, if they're um, bending the arc of, of, uh, of morality towards justice, then, then that's where you need to, um, to be open to hearing. Um, okay, so uh, people with the, with the gift of prophecy are naturally discerning. Going back again to being able to see God's uh, version of reality. They're compelling. Oftentimes, even though uh, it's an uncomfortable, uh, uncomfortable experience to listen to these people, um, they're, they're compelling, and you, they, they draw you in. They're, they usually have some charisma about them. Uh, they're uncompromising, sometimes almost annoyingly so. Okay. Uh, authoritative, they're confronting, and that should be convicting. Um, so they're, they're focus is trying to uh, get change to happen. They're not just um, naming sin or injustices for the sake of naming those things. They're trying to move people um, to correcting those problems. Uh, all right, a show of hands, have, have you seen this movie, Hidden Figures? 
Uh, you should go see it. It's great, or you don't have to go anywhere. You can Netflix it. Uh, we watched this this weekend, and you'd already seen it. Yeah, oh, yeah we watched this Friday night. Uh, it's a great movie. It's based on a true story of uh, a group of not just three, but a, an entire group of African American women who worked for NASA in the 60s. Um, these three, who are friends in the movie, have kind of different roles. Um, she's, she becomes the first supervisor at NASA. Uh, her character name is Catherine what? Johnson. Johnson. Yeah, but it changes, but we won't. No spoilers. Okay. Um, uh, and she's like a phenomenal mathematician. Uh, in fact, her like job title is called a computer because this is kind of before they have computers, although they're in the process of installing an IBM, and so everybody's kind of in a, a buzz about what's this IBM coming in. Anyway, she's able to do incredible math. Uh, and then the lady on the right uh, is becomes the first uh, African-American female engineer for NASA. So all kind of groundbreaking. But there are several, um, there are several women that, that work in the department. Um, and of course, it's the 60s, so there's all kinds of injustices that are happening. Uh, there are several times in the movie where you, you just kind of shake your head and think, you know, how was this? So uh, some context. You know, I, I was born in 76, so my whole life is post-civil rights movement. Um, I grew up in San Antonio, which is a very diverse community. Um, I, was a, I was a minority at schools I went, public schools I went to growing up, mostly because of the Hispanic population. The city's 70% Hispanic. Uh, so, I, you know, the race tension thing is just a very foreign thing to me. Uh, and it was our whole lives until we moved to uh, Augusta, Georgia, and that was kind of the first place we experienced racial tension. And we've also lived in Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, for uh, seven and a half years or so. So that was definitely present there. Um, anyway, I want to I play a scene for you here. Uh, and this um, is, a, is a prophetic scene, OK? Uh, Catherine, the lady in the middle, um, is going to talk to her boss, uh, who's Kevin Costner. His name is Al Harrison in the movie. And uh, what she says is, has nothing to do with the, well, I shouldn't say it has nothing to do with the Bible. <laughs> but it's not, it's not a sermon, uh, but it's a, it's a prophetic message that she offers. Okay, so let, let's watch this. What the hell have you been? Everywhere I look, you're not where I need you to be. It's not my imagination. Now, where the hell do you go every day? To the bathroom, sir. The bathroom. To the damn bathroom. For 40 minutes a day? What are you doing now? For T minus zero, I put a lot of faith in you. There's no bathroom for me here. What do you mean there's no bathroom for you here? There is no bathroom. There are no colored bathrooms in this building or any building outside the West Campus, which is half a mile away. Did you know that? I have to walk to Timbuktu just to relieve myself, and I can't use one of the handy bikes. Picture that, Mr. Harrison. My uniform, skirt below my knees, my heels, and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. No one knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. And I work like a dog, day and night, living off a coffee from a pot. None of you 
Yeah, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll mention that. So it's convicting, it's compelling, but more than, I mean, you can be convicting and compelling about vacuum sales, right? You can knock on the door and say, hey, I'm here to sell you a vacuum cleaner and be convicting and compelling about that. What makes this prophetic is that she's speaking about justice. And she is foretelling what is going to happen, right? She is leading us into a future that is, is more in step with God's version of reality. She's calling these people, um, she's calling them out for their injustice, for their sin, but with the intent of not just shaming them, but with the intent of moving them forward. And in fact, um, there are hints of that uh, through later in the movie. So the scene that, that Kent mentions, um, uh, after this, uh, a couple scenes later, uh, Kevin Costner, Al Harrison, walks over to the other side of campus where uh, Catherine has been you know, walking half a mile to go to the restroom every day, through the rain in this case, that's why she's all wet. Uh, and there's a sign outside the bathroom that says colored women, I guess is what it says. And so he takes a crowbar and beats the snot out of that sign. And it takes a while um, for him to knock that sign down. Knocks the sign off the wall. Of course, a crowd has gathered to see what he's doing. He's the chief of NASA, so he can kind of do what he, what he wants. Um, and he says, uh, NASA is not going to have uh, white restrooms or, or black restrooms. And in fact, he gives a funny line that says, here at NASA, we all pee the same color. But um, his, his point is, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous that we would, that we would do this. Um, it was frustrating to, to me to watch the movie because there were, there were certainly a lot of people um, that realized the foolishness of, of segregation and and all of those practices. But there were several people at NASA who were resistant to that change. You know, they felt that agitation and they didn't like it. And they would speak up against it and kind of do things to make things difficult for, for Catherine and others. And I, it was just frustrating because, you know, these are some of the most intelligent people we have. And, and even they were struggling with this movement um, towards justice in our culture. And so it's understandable, I guess, that as God's people, when we're facing things that we need to correct as a people, that it's sometimes difficult to do that. Um, but, but we've got to be open to those prophetic voices. So uh, not only is this instance prophecy, actually that scene where uh, Mr. Harrison knocks the sign down is a prophetic act as well. He is inaugurating a different future for, for that campus, for that group of people at NASA. Right? He, I mean, and it's not just a projected future, like, it's, it's happening right then. He starts that future by, by knocking that sign down. Um, very similar, which we're going to look at, but very similar to Jesus overturning the tables in the temple. Um, okay, so uh, a, a couple of quick stories here from my own uh, ministry experience. Um, so as I said, as a minister, as a clergy person, you, you embody kind of both of these roles at different times in, in ministry. Um, one example, these are both uh, stories from the church we were at in Mississippi. Um, kind of as a priestly role, <clears throat> there was a young couple at the church we went to uh, who um, were, were pregnant and were excited about that and learned in the course of their pregnancy that, that the baby had a chromosomal disorder and would likely 
not live very long after birth. And so um, they elected to uh, go full term with pregnancy. Uh, Owen was, was born and um, the doctor said he probably wouldn't live, probably wouldn't even be able to take his first breaths and would probably die immediately. Uh, and um, he actually lived uh, two or three days. And um, I happened to be the person that um, walked with those parents most closely from a, now there were, there were nurses that did much more than what I did. But um, I, I was the person from church that just was, was there with them the most and prayed with them the most often. And, um, uh, you know, there's, there's nothing that you can say in that kind of experience when you're sitting in a dark room in the NICU and mom and dad are taking turns rocking their baby uh, knowing that they have only a few short hours to do that. There's, there's nothing you can say that answers the questions. There's nothing that you can say that offers comfort. In fact, it's probably inappropriate to even try to offer comfort at that point. Uh, all you can do is be with them and cry with them. That's all you can do. But that's the role of the priest in that instance, to be present, to cry, uh, to literally cry out to God, to sit in silence for hours and be comfortable with that, to occasionally voice a prayer of frustration and anger and lament. Uh, that's, that's the priestly role. The prophetic role, uh, uh, when we were at the church, when we arrived to the church in Mississippi, uh, this is not, if you've seen the movie The Help, um, that was filmed very close to that church that we attended in Mississippi. <laughs> And I need to say, before I say the story, give the story, we, we deeply love that church. We deeply love the, the people there. Um, and every church has uh, fallacies. Every church has imperfections. Um, this was one of the imperfections that I viewed at that church. So when we, when we arrived, the practice of the morning nurseries, uh, Sunday morning nurseries for the little ones, was that we would have one church member in each nursery and uh, there were uh, black ladies that we had hired um, to come and kind of uh, be the help. I, I don't know how else to say that, but that's essentially what it was. And so, um, so the church member would kind of, you know, help care for the babies. And then when there was a dirty diaper or something like that that needed to be changed, the, the baby would hand it off. And, um, and there was, you know, there were wages being paid and stuff like that, but. I just felt like that was not in step with the trajectory of God's kingdom. And so when we came in, I said, I, I feel like we need to change this practice. Um, and so that was met with some angst and some pushback. Uh, but eventually we, we kind of went away from, from that practice and, um, and did different things. We just had church members in the nursery. Um, and so it's just kind of one small example um, but, you know, that, that, this was a new young minister entering into a church context, and pretty quick out of the gate, I said, we, we need to change that. And that didn't, didn't go over well, you know. That probably didn't win me any friends right out of the, out of the gate. But that, I felt like that was a little bit of the prophetic voice that I needed to offer in, in that context. So just to put some meat on the bones here when we're talking about these two different roles, that's kind of what it looks like, I think, in a local church context. All right, let's spend uh, the last five or six minutes we have in Scripture. So if you'll look at Mark 11, 
I mentioned this. This is Jesus overturning the tables in the temple. Uh, already 15 through 19. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And then the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When the evening came, they went out of the city. So this event recorded in the Gospels has volumes and volumes and volumes written on it. Just this little uh, event that happens. Um, and so what I think is that this is a prophetic event, not for the sake of uh, justice in money changing. You know, there's, pro there's been a lot of historical studies that say, well... It's possible that you know the den of robbers, the the merchandise and the merchandise uh, sales. There were there was cheating going on. You know they were using scales that weren't balanced right. Uh, they were possibly taking advantage of the poor people. Um, they were they were possibly saying as people would arrive. You know probably what they're buying here are animals for sacrifices, and so um, it's it's possible that. The priests and people in the temple were, were trying to tell the public, oh, you have to do this sacrifice, you have to do this. So they're kind of saying, you, you have to buy, not just like a lemonade stand, they're saying, you, you have to buy this in order to be right with God. So they're kind of bullying their way through the sales. And that's probably all true. And obviously, Jesus doesn't like that and wants to put a stop to that practice. But more than that, uh, I think in some ways, Jesus is uh, bringing the temple reign to an end. He is saying, he is supplanting himself in the role of the temple. Whereas before, people are having to come to the temple and offer sacrifices in order to reconcile with God. And in some regard, Jesus is saying, you no longer need to buy this sacrifice. You no longer need the role of the temple. I am that role. And so as he overturns the tables in the temple, uh, he's stepping into that temple role. Well, that's a prophetic event. It's a change in the way that God is operating in the world. And, and, and so Jesus um, is, is bringing that about. And, interestingly enough, what did we say about prophets? They tend to get killed. Uh, and immediately, uh, they're looking for ways to kill. Of course, we know that, that they do. Um, okay, last. We're not, we're not going to have time to look at Micah 6 which is a great passage, but let's look at Amos 5 for sure. <clears throat> what other, any, any thoughts about Jesus in the temple? Amos 
says to the house of Israel, hear this word, O house of Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. Fallen and virgin Israel never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. This is what the sovereign Lord says. So Amos now speaking on behalf of God. The city that marches out a thousand strong for Israel will have only a hundred left. The town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. This is what the Lord says to the house of Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. Where Gilgal will surely be in exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. For he will sweep through the house of Joseph like a fire. It will devour and Bethel will have no one to quench it. You who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Uh, let me skip down to nine. He flashes destruction on, on the stronghold and brings fortified city to ruin. Uh, you hate the one who reproves in court and despise him who tells the truth. You trample on the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. Uh, skip down to uh, verse 18. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings four years in the desert of the house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is God Almighty. He hates their religious gatherings. He hates their songs. He hates their offerings because they're treating him the poor unfairly. Because he wants justice to roll down like a mighty river. And until the people of God heed that prophetic voice and start living the way his kingdom is designed to work, none of that other stuff matters. So this is the gift of prophecy. This is the prophetic voice. And it's tough to hear, it's tough to take. Um, you know, uh, lots of times it's just easier just to mute it, or it's just easier just to kill that prophet. But it's important for us to hear it. Um, so, so two sides of the coin for the gift of prophecy. It's important for us to hear that, even when it's difficult. Um, but it's also important for us to voice it, even when it's difficult. So each of us has the gift of prophecy. I don't want to set that up as like, only Amos has the gift of prophecy, or only someone in a clergy role has the gift of prophecy. We all can have that gift. That gift shows up in the church in various capacities, like we read about in Romans and in First Corinthians. So um, if you have the gift of prophecy, you've got to have the courage to exercise that gift and to use it and to call people back to the, to the ways of God. So that's the gift of prophecy.
little bit heavier than some of the others, but important for the church, for sure. Okay. All right, that's all for today. Thank you for coming. See you next week.